Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 5, Episode 4. Today is Thursday, November 5th. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based in Nashville, Tennessee. We are all recovering from uh, uh, election aftermath that's droning on and on. We'll have a couple of stories about that. Uh, but we're really thrilled to have two super interesting and accomplished folks as the panel for today's show. Simon, I'm going to start with you. Take a minute. Tell us who you are, who you're with, what you do. Hey, Bradley. Thank you for inviting me to the show. Um, my name is Simon Lau. I'm the VP of product at Otter.ai. Otter.ai, if you haven't heard about the company and or the product yet, it is an AI note-taking app that enable you to uh, automatically take notes um, for your meetings, for your interviews, lectures, and virtual events. Um, so it exists as an iOS, Android, and web application today. But also, most recently, we have a plugin for Zoom. So all of your Zoom meetings can be live transcribed so that everybody can capture all the interesting conversations including even podcasts, perhaps, right? And uh, you can capture all the conversations, transcribe it, and we share it, repurpose it. Um, so very excited to uh, be on the show. Simon, thank you for being here. And, and you know, you and I have chatted in the past. Uh, it's been great seeing Otter and, and everything that your tool does. It's just really phenomenal. Thank you for being here. Our, our next guest is Nick Livingston. Nick, say hello. Hi, Bradley. <laughs> Nick, thank you for being here. And you got something really interesting going on as well. Tell us who you are, uh, who you're with, what you do. Hi, Nick Livingston. I'm a co-founder of uh, Honit Software. Um, Honit is a communication platform for recruiting, hiring, research teams. Um, I spent most of my career in recruitment. I was a, had a, a recruiting director at MTV Viacom and then uh, worked in the San Francisco Bay Area at startups, helping scale companies there. And spent a lot of time talking to candidates, screening candidates, getting candidates through the interview process. And it was a pretty inefficient experience. And I think fundamentally it's because there's a lot of scribbled notes and a lot of opinions that are shared from person to person. So Honit, uh, the interview software, helps turn those conversations, whether it be a phone screen with a recruiter or an intake call with a hiring manager or a video interview with a hiring manager uh, into talent insights that can easily be searched, shared, um, so the idea of interview data, interview collaboration, and, and ultimately interview intelligence is what we're excited about. Very cool. Yeah, and thank you for joining us. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting to see um, companies like yours, many others, you know, doing stuff with conversational AI and you develop a core and, and Otter, I would consider this the same as well. You develop this sort of core capability technologically and then you figure out what niche to attack, you know, and sometimes, so in fact, a lot of times people come into AI and they, you know, they think, well, you know, they, they'll come in as a generalist uh, and then they'll leave um, operating and dominating one particular niche. It's super interesting to see. And the niche that you've chosen, as well as the niche that Otter's chosen for that matter, um, are uh, needed. Uh, very needed. So anyway, that's my thoughts. That's my, th that's my uh, soliloquy on uh, hone it. Uh, you're doing something great. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Brad. You got it. So with that, we will get to the news. 
and uh, we are in the middle of uh, election um, anxiety, um, election uh, ambiguity. And so I wanted to start there. And we've got uh, story number one is actually a two-part story, and both come from VoiceBot. Um, they're sort of extensions of each other. 1A, how voice assistants are responding to election result updates. And then 1B, how Siri, Alexa, and Google Assistant are reporting on election day. So, you know, I think um, I, I want to get y'all's thoughts, if anything in particular jumped out at you between these two stories, number one. Um, number two, I'll just, I'll just ask the question, I guess. Uh, and Simon, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you know, did anything in particular jump out between these two stories that stood out to you? But number, you know, the second thing is, um, do you view Alexa, Google Assistant, Siri, these mainstream voice assistants as trustworthy sources of information for the election or for anything else? Your thoughts? Well, um, Bradley, I think trusted source it uh, it really truly depends on the the company that's doing the curation and making sure that it is pointing the answers to the right source so in one of the articles it was mentioning that uh pretty much across the board for the for the election results they are all uh using associate press and and so um so in, in each type of news source you want to figure out what is the best source and i think that really boils down to that for entertainment news or for any any other local news and that sort of thing, um, the user potentially can also say, hey, Alexa, and, you know, I want to get the news from a, or configure it to a particular source, then you can sort of customize, right? So I think that is fascinating. Um, it's, uh, I think there's a responsibility for any sort of a media and journal journalism companies to, to make sure that it's providing the right accurate information. Um, it's regardless of whether it's a smart speaker or any type of, uh, or, you know, on social media or on, um, on YouTube or on digital channels, TV news. Um, it's, um, I think it's fascinating to, to make sure that we are getting the right information from the right source. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting way to view that. And I, I think you're right. It, it, you know, it, it, these, these voice assistants, um, in many ways, certainly up until this point, just route, you know, they're receivers of queries and they're routing things different places. And, um, you know, from, from your comments, you view that apolitically. I think that's probably the way I would view it. Um, and uh, that's interesting to hear your thoughts. Nick, I'm going to ask you the same question. Anything in particular jump out to you um, about these two stories, uh, which are pretty closely tied together. And, you know, the mainstream voice assistants, Alexa, Google Assistant, Siri, et cetera, do you trust them? Yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of two parts of this, right? There's the medium that is voice, right? So instead of reading an article or reading a book, you can listen to the, the audio book or you can listen to the news being read to you perhaps, right? So there's that just that voice angle, which may not be that different, right? If you trust the source, you can essentially trust the content that you're hearing versus reading. Um, I think what, what Simon was getting into is, is um, that um, curation aspect. You know, if, if you're gonna ask Siri a question, that answer could come from 
one of thousands or millions of places, right? And so how are they determining where that answer comes from? And that's likely gonna be based on your search habits and the information that they know about you and all of the, the pixels that are scraping our information every day, you know, those are gonna go into the results or the content that we likely hear or get back. So I think any of these, you know, this is a, a, this curation debate is a big thing now with Twitter and Facebook and blocking tweets or blocking content. I mean, you know, are they a platform or are they a publisher essentially? Sure. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's really interesting to see um, Twitter, for example, you know, and the whole thing about, Trump in two thirty a.m. or whatever comes out says, "Hey, I won." <laughs> Twitter says, "No, you didn't." Uh, a lot of people said, "No, not yet." And the way that was handled, and thinking about um, how that applies in the voice realm, because it really hasn't been tested yet. Because you know these voice assistants, they're ubiquitous, but they're not as constantly used as social media. So the, you know, the public in, in my line of sight uh, hasn't really been asking, well, you know, let's go find out what Alexa and Google Assistant saying about Trump and Biden every step of the way and see if it's influencing somebody like they are with social. I think that at some point that that may change as voice and AI, you know, conversational AI takes more and more of a role in our lives. Um, it's not that hard to envision a future where these same questions being asked on about Twitter and Facebook and what is their responsibility, if any, um, come over into the realm of these mainstream voice assistants. Any, any closing thoughts on that? To, I mean, to your point around does voice offer some more trust or credibility, I think we also need to break down what that could be. If you're actually, if instead of reading a tweet that could have been written by anybody, a ghostwriter or one of someone on the social media team uh, of, the, of Trump's team, you know, he has a pretty clear voice. So it's you, you're assuming those are actually coming from his thumbs. Right. But, you know, most organizations have teams of social media professionals, right, that are choreographing and staging these tweets and things like that. And, and again, I think text only goes so far. If you're actually hearing the person say it, though, and it's in their real authentic voice, I do think that might offer more trust, credibility into journalism, news articles, things like that. Hey, this person really said that quote. It's not just reading the text in between the quotation marks. I think that's a good point. Uh, you know, audio... Uh, and hearing somebody, there's a whole other credibility calculus there, you know? And um, and I think some people might say, well, what about, you know, fake voices and things like that? And maybe there's a Pandora's box to open there. But yeah, it's just interesting to me to, to look at um, the discussion around the election and think about and then sort of merge that into the, the direction that we know that these voice assistants and AI is going and think about what that intersection uh, portends. Uh, Simon, any closing thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I want to uh, build on what Nick is saying. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of it as this, the soundbite of the actual person saying something, right? So then you also hear the intonation and the way that it was expressed rather than even, you know, even some uh, social media influencers, they have a very clear voice, even that carries through 
the the wording and word choice and the way they tweet. But still, having that soundbite, I think that's uh, that's interesting because uh, on TV, if you see a, a clip of you know either Trump or Biden say something, right? There's certainly the way that they they deliver that message that also carries some information. So what I've noticed is right now so far. I haven't noticed a lot of sound bites through these voice assistants yet. So maybe it takes extra work to do the curation and make sure that, you know, you're not only just having Siri or, um, or Google assistant reading out according to this source, this is the answer that I got. And then the voice assistant read out a paragraph of the content that is written. So I think that might be the next natural step to make sure that there's more of the original sound bite that gets delivered through these voice channels. Even in social media, already you, you see a lot of video clips and and um, Twitter started having more experimenting voice tweets where even though you don't have a video carry with it, um, what would it be like if voice is actually in the tweet? So I think that next step I think is interesting. Maybe it can deliver the news faster. Does it really help to make it more trustworthy? We don't know. I think this this is a lot of unanswered questions there, but I'm I'm, I'm excited to see more of that soundbite to to be delivered through either voice assistants or even social media channels. Excellent. Yeah, a great commentary all the way around on that. And we'll, I got a feeling we'll be talking about election for the next few weeks. Uh, so we've <laughs> we'll leave that right there. Um, story number two from the Press Gazette uh, over in the UK. Smart audio, what publishers need to know about the latest tech revolution. So this article, um, it's long, first of all. It covers a lot of ground. There's a lot of different moving parts to it. And um, Nick, I'm going to start with you. Um, sort of a generalist kind of piece. We like to include these things on the show. I I anything in particular jump out to jump out to you about this piece um you know what what are you i'll just leave leave it right there what are your thoughts which um are we talking about the smart audio one or yes we are from the press gazette um gotcha i you know i think i think the article my, my initial read on the article is just it seems limiting right i mean i think every publisher every website out there has the possibility is the ability to, to share audio content right I mean, video video has been all the rage for, for 10 years. And I think people are coming back to voice and audio, recognizing convenience and things like that. Um, so I don't know, the article just felt a little limited, you know, keeping it to an Alexa, a Siri, you know, uh, you know a voice box, let's you know, call them. Um, I think publishers in general could start infusing more interesting audio and content within the articles that they're, we're reading within, you know, the publisher experience in general. Yeah, no, I agree with that, and and uh, you know, yeah, I agree. I agree with your thought that this article does sort of frame things up in a in a constrained kind of way, um, and uh, it sort of limits its own scope. Uh, but uh, thinking about how publishers, you know, publishers sitting on all this content, we're all inundated with content. How do you continue to to monetize that? And Simon, I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, Interesting sort of article here. Um, it's one of these that sort of stays at a lot of you know surface depth. But uh, I want to get your thoughts. Anything in particular jump out at you? 
Well, the two charts jumped out at me. So I'm I'm looking, I'm staring at a chart, the first chart that says proportion that use each device to access news in the last week. So that's from 2013 to 2020 UK. So the interesting observation there on the chart is that the two lines that cross each other are um, smartphone and computer. So essentially those two are smartphones taking over computers. So more people are consuming news through smartphone instead of computer. Tablet, pretty flat. Smart speaker has a start. Right now it's at about 5%. So I think it's the adoption is slow, even though almost everyone I know has at least one or two. So so I'm I'm curious what that really means. Like is is it what people are using smart speakers for and is it is news the the most efficient is it the most efficient way to deliver or consume news um so i think it's still slow adoption and then the next chart underneath do you ever use voice assistant <laughs> to access news content is a um i didn't do the math but it looks like about what so it says 424 says no 95 says yes what does that come out to probably 10%, 20%? Yeah, so 20%. Um, 20%. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested to in seeing the trend because I know for just one data point for myself, oftentimes when I ask um, a question, um, the voice assistant answers very long and I tend to just say stop and <laughs> get annoyed. Um, so that's one thing. I also appreciate the combination of audio and visual kind of take it back to the election results i think it's interesting to see the maps so and that's something that voice assistants are not going to deliver um so how are we going to augment that right um is it through these smart screen slash voice assistant devices so that you get both the visual and the in the audio to deliver the output so those are the type of things i'm interested at seeing how what the trend will be yeah, yeah i like i like the other piece about it where i just talked about how the 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 newspapers have a real disadvantage here you know and that they just they're they're you know well most of them have a website online let's say but still just this idea of going from physical paper text where you're writing for a town and you're you know you're you're trying to write something for the entire town to read versus writing something that a specific person you're trying to get in front of would want to read, right? And that kind of audience segmentation is how the world of advertising and how the world of publishing works today, right? It's publishers have access to audiences that are unique and then advertisers are willing to pay money to get in front of those eyeballs of that particular demographic or that particular audience segment. So um, I think with smartphones versus the speaker on your table or your nightstand, you know, that, that speaker's not moving with you. So I can see why that's, there's a limit, you know, you have a couple hours a day, maybe where you're in front of it, but the smartphone's always with you and it's location-based and your content's changing as you change, right? I mean, the idea of being able to target content based on your location, Foursquare was amazing uh, about kind of this whole new, new layer of geolocation data and content, right? And having access to that. So, um, and then advertisers could leverage that to get in front of the right eyeballs even even closer, you know? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, um, I um, read this article 
And I think about, um, you know, Simon, I think it was great to part, point out the graphs. I think that, you know, it's easy to overlook them in this wall of text, but, you know, there's, there's two very interesting uh, visuals in there. And, um, you know, the 80% saying that they've never, um, or they don't currently use smart speakers, voice assistants for news. I think that I would expect that to grow over time. And I'll share with you a little bit of an anecdote from, from me personally. So, this is my uh, Note 9 phone, which I've had for the last couple of years. I need a new phone. We'll see if it's Apple or reselling us the iPhone 5 or if it's the, uh, the Pixel or uh, one of these fold things that uh, all the, 20 year, the 18 to 20-year-olds are using. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so I had an experience with this one day. Um, I was super tired. And this is uh, pre-COVID. I was in a hotel. I think I had just given a talk or was about to give a talk or something and super tired, set my alarm on my phone and, um, and then just go to sleep like 20 seconds after hitting the pillow or whatever. So I wake up to my alarm and it's not a normal alarm. I'm like jarred because it's not a sound. It's not a chime. It's the news. And I had somehow activated a setting where the alarm noise of choice <laughs> was this uh, news briefing. And I just sat there, you know, uh, in gaining consciousness, uh, you know, uh, second by second, listening to this news report. I just sat there and listened to it, it was about five minutes. And I just, it was incredible. It was, uh, it was, you know, uh, it just opened my eyes to uh, a different way to possibly consume news. Now, I knew about flash briefings. We've all seen sort of the evolution of flash, flash briefings on the Alexa platform, and that really feels like a underdeveloped uh, asset. Um, it feels like something that maybe it, it hit first, Maybe it showed up on the scene a hair before its time, um, and then we'll come back to it. But uh, when I think about voice assistants and conversational AIs and specifically news, there's a lot of different types of content that you could talk about. But when I think about news, I think about flash briefings really being the death star of changing the way you know people consume news and, and sort of bring voice and AI into that picture. Any, any closing thoughts on that or anything related to the article? Yeah, I've used a flash briefing for a while. I don't know why it didn't stick, but um, for, the, for the couple of months I used it, um, I was excited about uh, setting up and configuring and sequencing so that I have a morning routine when I'm making my cup of coffee and you know I'll just uh, say, hey, Alexa, my, what's my flash briefing? And then... And, and, Alexa start talking in the background while I'm doing other things. So, so I think for that sort of background, so that, that serves as a good replacement to turning on the TV and figure out which channel to tune into the news and same thing, you, you hear the background. Um, so I think that's interesting, but I, I am kind of curious why I stopped using it. Is it because there was not enough content or trusted sources or is it, uh, somehow a certain section is still too long. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Bradley, do you, have you been sticking to it? And how are you configuring your flash briefing? Is it The answer is no. So no. yeah, and, and I don't know why I haven't stuck to it either. 
you know, I'll use it uh, on occasion. I'll, I'll, um, every time I do, it's still sort of in that experimental zone, that experimental mindset where the expectations are always low, but, uh, but I do it anyway. And I just, you know, um, and almost every time I enjoy it, um, because every, I, I use it the same way I described, uh, for me personally, I'll wake up to it. And, um, but yeah, I don't know, something's missing and uh, you're hitting on it. Something's, and I think we've seen that from adoption. You know, we've seen a lot of adoption and it hasn't stuck. You know, the consistency and the, um, uh, the stickiness of user routines, um, you know, over and over and over and over and over again and permanent formation of habit hasn't been there. Um, and it's far from just the two of us. That, that's a, uh, a well-documented fact. And so I don't, I, I agree. I don't know. I don't know if it's, we need that next level of context brought to AI um, to where we just know it's going to give us that good information without having to think about it, um, you know, and build up that trust. Uh, that's got to be part of it. Maybe there's others. Um, Nick, anything else to add? Makes me think of a couple of things. It makes me think of before we became kind of so reliant on Facebook and Twitter, you know, and their algorithms telling us what to look at. You know what I mean? I remember maybe it was 2004, five, six, like RSS feeds were the thing, right? Do y'all remember RSS feeds where you could take, oh, I'm a fan of uh, English Premier League soccer. So I would like, I'd have an RSS feed on my homepage of my, my computer with the most pressing news stories from you know, that league and that I'd be interested in recruitment technology. And so I'd have a, a the SourceCon blog or something like that feeding. And you'd have this like dashboard of all the relevant news articles that's, you know, that you've selected, right? And, and they, they're just in order of, let's say, most recent, but it was still kind of this dashboard of you could click. And, you know, if that was audio or voice instead of just articles that you could read, I think that that's, that feels similar to this in a way of you having a little more control of your of, of what you might want your alarm clock to sound like, right? Or what articles might appear there when you wake up. But it, it also, this all kind of brings me back to the clock radio, you know, in the early eighties where your alarm could be a radio station with the news. And so some of this seems like we're taking giant strides forward with technology. And then some of it seems just kind of familiar. Like that's what the news used to be on. If you listen to NPR in the morning, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I think that's so, really it. I think it's that personalization and marrying the yeah. somehow that suggest, suggested algorithm based on what you have listened before. And maybe like when I say Alexa, stop, then it also learns from that negative data point as well. Yeah, I think that, that's just super interesting to, to ponder. You know, I, uh, we've all been through that, the alarm clock, waking up to morning radio or whatever. And, and you think about the analog there of, we trust that source. So we trust that source to, um, and I don't mean from a, a, a 2020s definition of trust where we're talking about something being real or not real, but um, more of uh, the person that we trust the personality. Um, and if they're bringing, if they're, they're we trust their curation. Um, you know, if, if we, the morning DJ of choice is talking about, um, news story X, uh, when they could have been talking about news story Y, we know that reasonably they know their audience wants to hear about news story X more than news story Y. 
and uh, you know, and the audience is better served. And AI is working its way there, but uh, I think that gap with flash briefing specifically, that delta is pretty telling. Uh, as it shrinks, you know, we'll be able to to watch in real time us approaching that day. The uh, the one other point that I the corollary maybe to this would be. This idea of, um, you know, radio, listening to music on the radio used to be where the DJ, you know, either before or after the song or maybe every other song, he would let you know, hey, that song two songs ago was this song by this artist. Right. So you heard the song and then you learned who it was or, or knew who you were listening to. I think one of the disconnects when we have shifted to, say, Spotify and things like this is we had access to millions and millions of songs and curated lists and all this stuff. But if you're just if you're not looking at the screen and you're just listening you hear all this music, but you never know who it was or what it was, right? And my my worry or concern a little bit with this voice movement here might be, you know, if it's just going to play you the news and you're not saying, hey, I'm on this station or I'm on this trusted news source that I, I believe in and I'm just getting fed stats or content and it's not saying this was from this article dated this date by this publisher, like, which it probably wouldn't because that's friction. I just worry that, it, we would lose some credibility there, right? If it's not actually including the source, you know, uh, in, in the highlight or whatnot. I think they'd have to. Yeah. But you're right. I think that there's, that's just one aspect of several things that that has to be navigated, um, one way or the other. Uh, but yeah, fascinating conversation. Uh, and we'll leave that there. Uh, we'll move on to story number three from MIT technology review, AI pioneer, Jeff Hinton, uh, deep learning is going to be able to do everything. So we've been down this road with articles like this before. Um, it's always good to uh, uh, go hear from our friends in the ivory tower uh, on, uh, on, on the state of um, AI, machine learning, deep learning, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Simon, I'm going to start with you. Um, this article um and and it's a presented in sort of an inter interview format with this gentleman um is a little provocative in some of the things that it says um but i just i thought it was interesting and certainly the title was interesting uh what you think about this piece i truly think that no matter how we spin it whether we talk about specifically deep learning is going to be able to do everything or another possible headline is AI bots is going to take over human work or, you know, all these <laughs> similar type of articles that might strike fear or, or maybe, you know, be provocative in different ways, but they're kind of saying similar things from, from a different angle. Um, I personally honestly believe that we will get there. So the question is when, a matter of when. So one point, one Q&A that I saw in this article when, when the interviewer and the answer was, so basically they're comparing, um, I think Hinton was saying that the GPT-3 right now, oh, the human brain has about 100 trillion parameters or synapses. And what we now call really big model like GPT-3 has 175 billion. 
So that's still a thousand times smaller than the human brain. So I thought that's interesting. So a thousand times. So, um, so how long does that take <laughs> to match or surpass it? Right. So I think that would be interesting to, to uh, conjecture. Yeah, completely agree. And and Nick, I'm going to ask you the same thing. Uh, just sort of open ended, um, interesting, interview oriented piece here. Uh, what if anything stood stood out to you? What you what you think? It kind of it brought me back to the world that I I'm in around recruiting and hiring conversations. To be honest, um, you know, for for quite a while now, a lot of companies have been trying to match the resume with a job description. Right? That's like. How do you hire better by matching a resume to a job description? And I think, you know, over the last five to 10 years of people trying that, they've realized it doesn't really correlate. And two, you know, uh, are job descriptions actually that good? <laughs> are people even putting any thought to the job descriptions we're writing? Or are people actually truthful on their resumes? And how factual is that? And so what, have, what are we even using to try to match, even if we could match, right? And so I think that that's kind of a, you know, we folks who've been in the space have seen that come and go for folks new to recruitment technology. It's the first thing everyone wants to try. It's like, let's match resumes and job boards and, and simplify this. But there's just a lot of false data and, and it's getting garbage in garbage out when it comes to any of this stuff. Um, so similarly, when we're looking at like interview conversations and you no, know, you know, interview data, you know, we're excited with Hona to try to look at what questions should you be asking a QA automation engineer? And more interesting is what makes a good versus great answer to any given question, right? And so this idea that now you're capturing this data, you can start to do really cool stuff with it. I think where some companies, there's a slippery slope around, are we trying to just capture a lot of data and provide some insights, insights to make the person make a better decision, like to inf have a better informed decision that a human makes? Versus you go one step further and we're trying to say, oh, no, we're building a system that's actually going to analyze these interview questions and answers, spit out a number, and then that's it, right? And so, you know, versus the matching jobs to matching uh, resumes to trying to make the decisions around conversation intelligence, I think that's, there's a big difference there. Um, yeah, no, that's great. But interesting perspective from both y'all and I, and uh, it's, it's a challenging piece. Um, you know, it, it's one of the things I took away from, and I want to focus in on one specific part of this. And I'm, I'm just going to read part of this out loud. So the question is, uh, or, or, you know, it's in an interview format. So the interviewer says, a lot of the people in the field believe that common sense is the next big capability to tackle. Do you agree? And then Hinton says, I agree that that's one of the very important things. I also think motor control is very important and deep neural nets are now getting good at that. In particular, some recent work at Google has shown that you can do fine motor control and combine that with language so, you, so that you can open a drawer and take out a block and the system can tell you in natural language what it's doing. Um, so he basically completely ignored that question. <laughs> and I, I, I found that really insightful because... Um, uh, you know, when you ask about common sense, okay, you, you know, you're talking about uh, immutable, irrefutable, hard encoded to our humanity ground truth. And uh, for that to be incorporated into an AI, 
I guess I would simply say you just you better be right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like with whatever you, whatever you think that is, uh, you better be right. And I want to use a specific example. So with this election, um, and this is just part of what I see as what's a, a potential problem or what has to be navigated with um, so-called common sense. So if you ask people on the political right, what is common sense about this election? Well, they're going to tell you that what's common sense is looking at uh, one particular candidate who has uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people come to events, uh, while another candidate has almost no one come to events. And what does common sense tell you about how the election should shape out? The other side, if you ask the political left what is common sense, they would say, well, of course no one's going to come to any events because we're in the middle of a 100-year pandemic and nobody wants to get sick. And uh, so they, they never even tried to do that. That was never even on the table to do that. And so you can't discern anything. So you have two pretty divergent views of common sense. And those are the precise words that would be used, by the way, on either one of the sides of this discussion is the words common sense to describe this. So uh, <laughs> I pity the AI researcher <laughs> or the uh, data scientist who has to navigate these waters because I think there's plenty of things um, with us as human beings where there would be reasonable disagreement on what common sense is, but when you introduce politics to it, which a lot of times with our culture can easily happen, then it just gets worse. And um, so that's that's one thing I keyed in on. I was really looking forward to an insightful answer to the question. I absolutely didn't get it, and but in a way I did get it because uh, what is there to say other than that that's gonna be super challenging. Uh, any closing thoughts on this piece before we move on, move on to the last one? I think um, I think it's all fascinating. I, we again we spend a lot of time thinking about like interview bias, and that could stem around like who is asking the question. Is a candidate going to have a different answer to a question if it's a recruiter asking the question versus a QA engineering lead versus a VP of engineering versus a co-founder? Right? Are you going to change the way you answer a question depend on who's asking it? Um, similarly, like. When you hear someone's answer, you know, the context around who's saying it, what their resume says, where they're saying it from, all of those things might go into what you're hearing. So, I mean, part of me gets excited about, you know, conversational AI or, or data science with politics and maybe removing the, the ambiguity, the subjectivity, all that, all that context. And if you shared a quote with someone from the right or the left without saying, here's a far left liberal saying this thing, maybe the person on the far right would hear it differently, you know? So, so maybe if we strip out some of that stuff and just talk about what was said or what is the thing and not who is saying it or who is trying to be the intermediary, um, that might help us. And maybe data or true conversational AI might reduce that, that bias. That'd be nice um, <laughs> if we could do that. Uh, Simon, any closing thoughts? Yeah, so... So in terms of, we, we just talked about common sense and context. So in the context of when author, what authors try to tackle, whether it is interviews or lectures or meetings, right? 
So people spend so much time in meetings, Otter is helping you to transcribe it. And eventually we want to analyze and be able to come up with insights about the conversations. Like, you know, you have a 10 people meeting, it's a very expensive meeting. So hopefully you can retain some information, extract action items and make some sense out of what was discussed. So common sense is relative. Do you want the AI to tell you what you want to hear? <laughs> or do you want the AI to be very objective and, and somehow derive something that's actually counterintuitive and it's not quote unquote common sense, right? So I think it's kind of relative. Um, so that's one, one, one thought. The other thought is that, yeah, I, I think it's very challenging to be able to say just, hey, a neural network or AI machine learning, let's try to come up, you know, use, uh, tackle common sense because um, this, it, it would be challenging to be able to say fed the right amount of data to make sure that it spits out the right conclusion or the right summary, the right meeting summary the, or the right meeting insights or conversational insights that will fit the needs of every single scenario. So a level of personalization, a level of control to be able to peek into the black box of what you really want the AI to do um, to yield the results that, that will derive the benefit, uh, some level of personalization or customization is required. Um, so it would be interesting how much of it is really completely generic and common sense to all versus how much of the, the benefits of AI is deriving value that are beneficial to the individual, beneficial to an organization, a company, a school in, in those units. Well said. Yeah, that's great commentary from, from both of y'all on that. It's super interesting piece. And so I thought it'd be good to include it. Uh, and we'll move on to our last uh, story of the week here from Tech Explorer. Um, and I want to read this title specifically, Computer Scientist Researches Interpretable Machine Learning Develops AI to explain its discoveries. So this is interesting. So this is uh, AI telling us what AI is doing while AI is doing it. Um, Nick, I want to start with you. And then uh, Simon, I'll give you the last word. Um, what do you think? Is this, is this a reasonable expectation that um, AI can simultaneously do what it does while telling us about what it does. Uh, I'm kind of excited about it, but yeah, what'd you think? I liked it. I mean, and for those who didn't read the articles, the, it's a reference around being able to, you know, an, an image of a bird, being able to diagnose what type of bird it is from all the different attributes, but not just spit out, hey, this is a canary, but to be able to walk through and say, oh, the beak is elongated in this shape, which makes us think it fits this particular, like it's, I actually like it because it's transparency kind of into the algorithm, right? It's not just a black box. So, and I think this might be a great way to, for people to not be so scared about AI is if it wasn't just spitting out a result and everybody's like, ah, like, what is that? How did that do that? But it actually just through logic and again it's probably just ones and zeros and yeses and nos and we're all very logical beings if we knew all the yeses and nos that went into that decision we might be less intimidated we might be very impressed by how many yes and nos that algorithm thought about but that it might not be as scary when we're like oh it makes sense the, the beak is a little longer the tails were yellow uh it had four talons instead of five talons and that's a good way to think about that <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. And Simon, I want to get your thoughts as well. Um, you know, this is sort of a, um, it makes sense when you read it, but it, I don't think it was necessarily intuitive before that. Uh, your, your thoughts on uh, this piece and this concept? I completely agree with Nick. I really enjoyed this piece because it reminds me how, uh, let, me, let me draw some analogies. You know, when, when students are in school taking exams, you don't just solve the problem and write the answer. You, you, you want to show your work in between, right? So, so there's got to be some interesting part about that. Why? Because, you know, you, you don't want to just get to the answer. Sometimes the, the reasoning in between, or if you're doing a proof where you want to, you know, mathematical proof, you want to follow step by step to get to that point. So you understand how you arrive at the end. Or if you're reading an article, uh, sometimes, you know, you read the headline, okay, it's provocative, but you want to learn more. You want to hear more about what the author is saying. So I think naturally human being like that journey, like that story, like the reasoning, where do you, you know, you just enjoy consuming content and, and getting to the head, get into the heads of the, the content producer, whether it's an author or an artist or, or whatnot. Um, and in the context of AI, um, me being a product manager of an AI product, I often ask my AI engineer, how the heck did we get, <laughs> get to these results? And sometimes I get these blank answers. Well, we train the model and that's what it gets out. You know, sometimes I wish I get to see that black, you know, uh, peek inside a black box and be able to see these, um, uh, natural language, these uh, uh, machine learning models, and understand how we arrive at the the accuracy or not for a specific type of uh, data set that we're training when we're training in an AI-powered uh, transcription model. Um, so, so I think it's insightful and interesting in every way. Cool. Yeah, complete agreement. And uh, it sounds like we got some consensus on that. And yeah, it's super... Super interesting glimpse into the future. Um, and uh, a lot of times we'll end This Week in Voice with a uh, story that's more weird or bizarre or something humorous, but this one uh, is more hopeful. So that's uh, maybe it's not a bad time for that. Simon and Nick, thank you for being part of the show. Uh, thank you for taking time uh, to share not only your uh, rich experience, but your expertise with me in the audience as well. Thanks, Bradley. Thanks, Simon. Thank you, Bradley. Nice to meet you, Nick. For This Week in Voice, Season 5, Episode 4. Thank you for listening or watching if you're watching on YouTube. Until next time.